It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. The Wise Money Show is brought to you by the attorneys at South Bank Legal, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Homes Team, and Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. I'm also one of the CFPs on the program. No Kevin Corhorn today again, but with me in the KFG studios, my business partner and sometimes friend, Josh Gregory. <laughs> oh, maybe not at the moment, though, right? <laughs> oh, Mike, I love you. Well, listen, 2021 has been off to a roaring start. And in fact, it's been uh, one of the best first six months of stock market history. When you look at a, a calendar year and all of them have, have come down the pike here. Now, the question is, what does it mean for the second half of the year? What should your expectations be? What's causing all of this? We're going to unpack that for you today on the Wise Money Show. So Josh, right before, right as I was starting the show and we got things started, he pulled a little joke and screamed into the microphone. And anyway, he's on my uh, naughty list at the moment. So we'll see if I get him back. If you have a question for the program, and we get a lot of questions about, you know, are we in a bubble? We're going to answer that here coming up. And what's going to happen with interest rates, inflation? Should I make changes to my investment? All that sort of stuff. If you have questions, reach out to us. If you need some help, you have a second opinion. How do I invest during this during this, you know, unusual time or I'm looking to retire? Should my investment approach change? Uh, if you're looking for some one-on-one -on -one help, we can certainly help you there as well. So if you have needs or a question for the show, reach out to us. You can do so a couple different ways. Uh, find us online, wisemoneyshow.com. You can call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. And then all of our social media, you can reach out to us there as well. Just search The Wise Money Show. All right. So like Josh said, it's just, it's been a, it's a crazy kind of unusual year and we're going to dive into that a little bit but if you um if you fell asleep right after did they do a ball drop i can't remember on <laughs> i was on new year's day on new year's day if you fell asleep and woke up on july 1st uh number one you know i'd be very jealous because you'd be more way more rested than i am right now <laughs> and uh and number two you'd look at the market returns and say oh yeah pretty great right but underneath the surface it's it's been very very strange and we're going to get into some of that but let's start by okay just what you know if you haven't been paying attention or if you've just been watching the day-to-day -day movement what's actually happened the first six months in total yeah i mean it's it's been unbelievable i mean you, you talked about it being a crazy year so far but if you look back 12 months also or, or look at what has happened since the stock market hit bottom in March of last year. It's up 92% since ins then. That's insane. Yeah, you know, depends on the day, obviously. It can fluctuate, but uh, up almost doubled, essentially, uh, mm -hmm. since we hit bottom a year ago. But this calendar year, so the first six months of this year, we've already seen the U.S. stock market hit 15.3%. That would be a huge year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's let's be honest. And we don't fall into these, you know, little, little traps where these economists or financial folks make their predictions, okay? But coming off of such a strange 2020, uh, the fastest drop bear market ever, the, the best 
50 days ever in the stock market and and, and then all this money printing and a fast recession but recovery the S&P 500 at the beginning of the year economists and you know these other folks talking heads were saying oh you know I'd expect maybe the market could get to 4200 guys by by Six months through, the stock market had well surpassed that. Mm-hmm. The S and P five hundred was, I think, forty three fifty something like that, and by 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 uh, the midway point. So, Josh, not only would this be considered a good year, it's almost doubled what the average person predicted for this year. That's exactly right, and. You know, the interesting thing about that, so we're talking about the U.S. stock market right now, but we're really only talking about the 500 largest companies in the U.S. stock market. If you were to take an x-ray looking into the S&P 500 and actually examine those 500, the top 10 are carrying a lot of that load. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of the potential returns or the actual returns that we've been seeing are are coming from. And a lot of them are the technology companies. They're the big names that have been high flyers. Not every company is actually higher. But even if we were to look at just the U.S. stock market in its entirety and look at not just large companies but also small-sized companies, they also have been booming. Small-cap stocks are up 17.5%, so even more. Yeah, and it's interesting because small-caps have had got most of that return there in the first couple of months of the year. And then they've gone you know, in a zigzag, very sharp, up, down, up, down, up, down ever since. And that's been very challenging for momentum strategies. We have one uh, of, you know, and then the other thing that you mentioned, Josh, is, yeah, this, the, the 500 largest companies, S&P 500, have in aggregate seen this level of growth. But underneath the surface, there's been something unusual happening. And that's, that's what, you know, the, these geeks like. Um, call it breadth. There's not a lot of breadth right now. And so the stock market recently has been hitting some all-time highs where there's a record low number of companies that are also advancing. A record uh, low. In fact, there's a record amount of companies that are well below their their all-time high, even though the stock market is reaching an all-time high. And so for for um, momentum trading and other things, it makes this time unusually frustrating, actually, right. despite this 15% return and for small cap, 17% return. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, um, again, the financial nerds, they get into discussions about, should I be taking an active approach to my investments or should I take a more passive approach? And they might look at the first six months of this year and say, see, if you had just held the S&P 500, you're up 15.3%. Isn't that fantastic? Just just hold the the whole basket instead mm-hmm. of trying to cherry pick the the best of them. But the, the reality is this is an environment where it is not equal. It is not across the board that uh, every company is having the same type of success. And y- you do have to wonder, well, are, are some of these companies such high flyers? Yeah. Have they gotten so expensive that they're, they're actually maybe vulnerable to a pullback here? Yeah. And what would that mean for the, the overall market? We're going to get into that a little bit more. But, um, but let's talk about then if, those, if that's the experience of the S&P 500, should, should your experience match that? Well, no, because in a diversified portfolio, you've got other ingredients as well. So those other ingredients, international, emerging markets, um, international was up 9%. 
I mean, it's still fantastic. Right. Fantastic. That's a, a great half a year. Right. That would have been a great year, even. E- emerging markets up seven, but then here's the real drag, and it should be no surprise, again, unless, well, hopefully it is a surprise, because hopefully you're not looking at your investments too frequently. But but bonds have been you know uh, uh, just awful this year because of how interest rates have moved. Now, they've come back a little bit. They're still down a couple percent, though. Yeah, and that's worth noting, though. Awful is down 1.6% for yeah. the first half of the year. Yeah. And a lot of folks coming into this year expected there to be kind of a headwind for bond investments because interest rates were so low. And when interest rates start to rise, it pushes down the value of bonds. So you can actually lose some some principal or lose uh, some of your account balance because of um, the, these interest rate changes. Yeah. So even in a really crummy environment or even in a, a headwind scenario, being down 1.6% is not terrible until you start comparing it to what the stock market's been doing. Yeah, and so on average, I mean, it just depends what your mix is, but should you expect to look at your statement be up 15%? No, you shouldn't, and especially if you are holding you know, 40% in bonds or 30% in bonds or 50% in bonds, then it's going to be significantly different than that. The question really then is what's driving these returns? And as Josh and I have already alluded to, is the peculiarities that are going on right now? Is there is there are there some threats brewing underneath the surface? Are there are there reason to be concerned with some of these? And and frankly, I think so. We're going to get into that. What's driving the market and what could be ahead? That and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Is there trouble brewing beneath the surface of, of what it has been just a phenomenal experience by the S&P 500 in the first six months? Is there trouble brewing? There, there could be, guys, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard here with me in the KFG studios. No Kevin Corhorn, but Josh Gregory is with me. If you have any questions or to stay up to date on Wise Money content, go to wisemoneyshow.com. Stay up to date there and then submit questions there. And then all over social media, wherever you're at, we are there as well. Submit questions there and subscribe to it. Just look up Wise Money Show. Okay. So market has just been, you know, it's just been peculiar. It's been, you know, like a, a, a tornado is coming. And, you you know, you know, because you've watched and you've seen on the your weather app. Okay, we got some bad weather and it's just weirdly calm yeah that's sort of you could feel that right now because we know there's all sorts of risk out there and yet the market has just sort of shrugged it off why what's been driving the market that's a that's a good analogy that you're using and hopefully it doesn't mean that there's a storm coming but um the the strangeness of the calm i guess is noteworthy though isn't it because it's it's not like it's all good news all the time in the economy and in the stock market, but it, it's sometimes kind of telling when you hear the news and you watch investors globally, their reaction to it. Um, what are they spooked by? What are they encouraged by? That kind of thing. And there have been plenty of themes that have been happening over the past year. You don't have to go back in time too far when all of the headlines, it felt like, had to do with the coronavirus and are we going to get vaccines and, and blah, blah, blah. And really, the market's reaction was just 
is there any positive news? Is there any hopefulness that this thing's going to get behind us at some point? Mm-hmm. I noticed the other day, I don't get those those articles pumped into my newsfeed anymore. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, so some people might have a political statement attached <laughs> to that, right? But um, the the reality is, it's not as much the focus anymore. Right. Um, and. I think people are kind of shrugging it off, trying to get back to normal. And and that has been often what's been driving the stock market here recently. It's the hope that we are going to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's it's referred to as sort of a reopening trade or buying the companies that are going to benefit when we can finally get back to normal. Because those are often the companies that were struggling through the pandemic and the shutdown and everything. Mm-hmm. Are things going to return to normal? Things like travel-related industry or restaurants and certainly, um, you know, some of the entertainment industry like uh, theaters and, and right. things like that. That's gotten a lot of publicity here recently. Now, okay, so let's let's dive into that, return to normal. Uh, we're certainly going to talk about these meme stocks, okay? So AMC and all that, that company was, it's lost money every year for the past five, I think, yeah. maybe even longer. And so this isn't a pandemic problem. Right. And yet it went from a $3 billion valuation to $30 billion because of all this pumping and, and, and energy, not optimism, but just energy into this. And mm-hmm. yet, um, I, I don't know the individual's name, but I did see a headline yesterday that someone um, who's run two different movie studios said, listen, the, the movie theater, the movie business is dead. It's just dead. And it's not because of the pandemic, although that accelerated things. It's because of streaming and so on. And the these Amazons and Netflix, they're making movies not for the art of movie making, but just to grab subscribers. And so they're yeah. so they're using algorithms to basically just try to grab your attention for 100 minutes and then move on. Mm-hmm. And they're not pumping them up. They're not doing that. So, you know, and this is someone who's passionate about the movie industry and is reflecting that it's never coming back. Yeah. And so there could be some permanent change. The other thing I would say is, you know, so what, you know, what's back to normal? Corporate profits are back to normal. If you if you look at the trajectory of corporate profits and their growth, and then you've got the pandemic, wham, way down, and then you've got where we are now and then what's expected, it's right back on the same plane. Yeah, it's okay. as if uh, 2020 didn't even happen, right? right? Yeah. And and the forecast of it continuing on into the future also assumes the trend continues. What's not back to normal? The Federal Reserve is still pumping $120 billion a month into the system, which if you're counting, that's almost double what they did even during the Great Recession, uh-huh. right? So they are st- the economy, while you would say, well, geez, corporate profits are back up and you know, this we also have a record number of job openings right now, and yet the economy isn't even on life support. The economy is like, I mean, what's what's the next thing above life support? Like it is still on be has so much money being injected to it and it's so accommodated right now. I to me, I think that is the number one theme. Yeah. That we've got this reopening happening and we've got government spending out the wazoo, but in addition to that. The Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates at its lowest rate, you know, ever, and has promised to do so for a while and then continues to inject liquidity into the economy. Yeah, you know, there, there's not that many economic topics that make their way into to history books, but it sure seems like someday this one would be worth writing about because in the year 2020, like we've never seen before, you had Congress and the, the Fed, our central bank, 
acting in concert together, kind of in tandem, and pouring it on like we've never seen before. And it, it was out of fear of, well, we haven't ever seen this scenario before. We've never shut down an economy before. And so the amount of money that the government was borrowing and just kind of throwing, just pouring it out onto our nation, onto mm-hmm. the economy, that and then the breathtaking amount of printing of money and the stimulus that the Fed is doing, often one of them will be working hard, the other one isn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. But a, a crisis brought about a, a commonality and a common focus, and it, it worked, right? I mean, yeah. it, it has had an economic impact for sure. Um, now, is it lasting? Is it too much? Um, nobody knows. And a lot of people wonder, well, is this going to create inflation? And Mm -hmm. inflation is another one of those themes that have been on most investors' minds. Certainly a question we get all the time when we're meeting with clients. Yep. And and so is it sustainable? Right now we've got um, government debt that has ticked over $28 And um, you said that no, so nonchalantly. I know, I know. Well, it's it's just a trillion. It's like it's no big deal. It's I'm just kidding. It's an enormous deal. Yeah, you you can't even get your mind wrapped around how big a trillion dollars is. And we've got 28 of them on our credit card balance right now. On the way to 30, because the budget, the the budget, which apparently um, includes some tax increases that haven't come yet and and likely are, are not going to come, at least the latest rumor. You mean they're spending it before they've got it? Is $6 trillion, and the revenue, the tax revenue, is only going to be around three. This is our biggest deficit we'll ever have. And so on autopilot, which those forecasts are always optimistic, way too optimistic, um, we should, we'll, we'll get to over 30 trillion this year in in debt. And on top of that, so that's what you're talking about. I mean, we've had this ballooning debt from government spending, but then the Federal Reserve balance sheet, meaning how much money have they printed and and basically used to purchase investments, purchase securities, dumping money into the economy was uh just below a trillion and and stayed that way for a long time and then 08 happened and get this, they printed a trillion dollars. So it went from a trillion to two and then it was steadily going up to four, and then whammo, we've gone from four to over eight trillion, and they're still going, they're still going. And so, if you're trying to make me mad, it is working. So, if, if this is the payback for me making you mad earlier, it, keep it up. It's it, not, this is awesome. It's not. This is um, when you add up all that debt and and all of the injection of cash and compare it to what all of that has then created an economic output, the stock market is at its same level as it was 20 years ago. When you take that money printing out of the equation, take it out of the market, it's pretty much flat. And so it hasn't gotten us the advance. So we're going to break down more what's ahead in the stock market, that and more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Are we in a bubble? I mean, that that's sort of the question when you look at the market, when you look at that, you know, the housing prices, all that. I mean, can't can't talk about an update on where the stock market is without asking that question. We're going to answer it right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. Across from me in the KFG studios, Josh Gregory. No Kevin Corhorn today. We miss him. He'll be back soon. 
Um, all right. If you want to stay up to date on all Wise Money content, go to the YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search Wise Money Show. Follow us there. Get this episode, all our others, and Next Rise Step videos, other content that we post there on a regular basis. So go to YouTube, search the Wise Money Show. Follow us there. All right. We've re- we've recapped what's happened in the market in the first half of the year and talked about what's been driving it. Normally, when we do these halftime reports or even a year-end review, what's been driving it, and we're listing out several factors. And that's Fed. It's Fed. I mean, we we hit we hit two. That's what's driving it. The economy's reopened, so profits are back, and the Fed and government are just printing money and spending money like crazy. And that's it. That's the that is that's all the summary you need. <laughs> so then the question is, when you have got that trifecta meaning the economy is back open and corporate profits are back on their pre-pandemic levels and growing. But you also have the bazooka, right? Didn't Jerome Powell say he's got a bazooka, uh, an economic bazooka that he'll be shooting into the economy? Um, when you've got the bazooka and all the weaponry of the, of the Fed pumping money and expanding liquidity in their balance sheet, and you've got the government willing to spend your grandkids' grandkids' money until... It, you know, it's laughable levels. But all this money pumping in, it's not sustainable, right? So does that mean we are in a bubble? Well, to me, that's not what makes it a bubble. Unsustainable doesn't mean that it's going to suddenly burst. It just means that things are going to change at some point. Because if something can't keep going on forever, it won't, yeah. right? And they can't keep on printing money forever. The government can't keep on borrowing money forever and just dumping it out there. At some point, this economy has to stand on its own two feet without being on life support, as, as we often say. And, and many people would say, well, we don't need it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are, we, why are we doing it? And um, at some level, the Fed has kind of tipped its hand and has confessed publicly that, well, we want there to be a certain amount of inflation that's created. And we're not going to be satisfied until we have created some of that inflation. And you could get into all kinds of political reasons for why they would want that. But it is a clear change from what their normal mandate has has been for our entire lifetimes, right? I mean, we were born into a a high interest rate environment because of inflation. It was like public enemy number one. And now we're kind of drifting back the other direction saying, well, you know, maybe actually it would be a little bit good to have some some inflation going stable stable prices and what maximum on maximum employment yeah and right th- those are the mandates and yeah. yet now we're talking climate change and now we're saying we want to drive prices up and, and isn't it ironic though also that some of the government action recently here has created incentives for people to not get back into the the workforce yeah you know it, it has been more profitable to not be working for, for many people. Mm-hmm. And this has created quite a disruption. I mean, we still have supply chain issues in this country because there's just not enough workers, right? You know, to unload docks at some of the key ports and uh, some of the shipping and, and everything. There's just not enough people to get the job done. And it's creating some some genuine hardships in certain um, manufacturing settings. That would be a, a point of hope or optimism that this bubble, this 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 quick rise in the markets and the economy, doesn't burst. Is I it does seem like there's greater demand than we even have supply to meet it. And maybe as that supply comes back online, the demand won't have this big shock to it, where all of a sudden it drops. It will be more tapered. 
and and that you know that could be that that could be a benefit. You know, one of the places where I I would say that exact same thing is in the housing world. Like, mm-hmm. we are short a whole bunch of houses in this country, millions of houses, because we were behind the eight ball coming into this thing. You have all this disruption of a of a shutdown. And now you also have a shortage of people in the construction industry. There's not enough houses being built to satisfy the the needs of a growing population right now. And so I look at that with an optimistic eye uh, that for the foreseeable future, there may have to be some more aggressive building happening just to meet the demand, as as you were saying. Now, we certainly hope that prices can kind of stabilize and things like lumber don't keep pushing the price of those new houses so sky high. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know, like uh, you, you think about what are the, in a normal e- economy, what are the good things that help drive economic activity? Build a house. Right. Because it's not just build the house and all the jobs that are created there. It's all the other stuff that goes into the house. It's the carpet, it's the appliances, it's the furniture, the paint, all the things that that go into a house, it has this kind of ripple effect in the in the economy, and it it's stimulative. Right? Speak, you know, speaking of the Bernards, went and made a purchase months ago, uh, replaced some furniture. You know, so the kids are still you know they're still a little messy, but <laughs> they're older, and so we get to yell at them when they make messes. And just kidding. The uh, <laughs> so the the furniture that has all the stains on it, mm-hmm. you know, ten years old or something. We said, nah, let's get some new furniture. Six months, six months. That we even paid for. That's it. how long you had to wait mm-hmm. to receive it. Yeah, wow. we got it right at the beginning of spring. And yeah, Thanksgiving. You'll probably have it by Thanksgiving. My wow. goodness. So, um, so I would tell you then. You know, hopefully we're we're not in a bubble type situation. And yet I would also tell you. There's, there's no doubt. There's no way to slice it. The the market is expensive. Now, does that mean well, what goes up has to come down? I wouldn't necessarily say that. I I wouldn't. It's not like gravity, where you throw something up in the air and you know exactly it's going to drop and it's going to drop here and it's going to drop you know immediately. Right. Um. That's not the case. But so, how would you say the market's expensive? Because at an all time high, no. That's how it's supposed to work. That's that, right. That's how it's supposed to work. It, and and because the um, Josh shared the analogy before, it's it's sort of like watching someone bouncing a yo-yo, and the market's you know the the trajectory of the market and the movement is the yo-yo, but that person bouncing the yo-yo is walking uphill or walking upstairs. That's that's how it works. But when you look at the price per share for the earnings and we've got record earnings now coming back online the price of a share of stock per earnings is now at higher levels yeah you're talking and about the pe ratio the pe ratio have you been talking about that with clients at all yeah yeah i, I think if kevin were here he'd be throwing things at us yeah. because we're getting awfully nerdy here but I, i've been talking about that a lot because mm-hmm. if you look at the pe ratio as a measure of how expensive the stock market is as as a whole it's reaching levels that are similar to uh, the late 90s, early 2000 range when we were in college, essentially. Yeah. A- and that f- that period of time, we look back on the stock market and we've labeled it now, right? We call it the dot-com what? Yeah, bubble. Bubble. The dot-com bubble. bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a bubble right now, 
but it certainly should make us cautious and and being extra watchful for bubble-like tendencies. And even then, you know, it's not like, oh, well, once it hit this high PE, it just dropped. No, it kind of hung out up there for six years. Long time. Long time. And then the other thing, the other measure that you would say, well, listen, I don't care your opinion on bubble or not. The market's expensive right now is Warren Buffett has said in the past, now he's since sort of uh, changed his tone, but the most uh, the best indicator of the market's valuations to compare the entire market cap to GDP, and that's that's termed the Buffett indicator at its record level. I mean, the market is 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 two hundred percent of GDP. Which wow. is crazy. <laughs> so, so if you looked at the total value of all of corporate America, compare it to the size of our economy, it's twice as big. You're it, saying, and it's record levels. So. Okay, if the market's high, and if we've got all sorts of intervention happening, what changes should you make? We've got that more coming up on The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. The Wise Money Show is brought to you by... The attorneys at South Bank Legal, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Homes Team, and Bethel University Adult and Graduate Studies. When's the right time to draw Social Security? That is sort of an evergreen question. We get that a lot. That's what uh, that's what Bill reached out and asked. We're going to answer that here in just a moment. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. Across from me in the KFG studios, Josh Gregory. Kevin Corhorn is off today. Uh, stay up to date on all Wise Money content. Find us online, wisemoneyshow.com, and then all over social media. Just search the Wise Money Show and follow us there. This has been our halftime report for the markets. Now, your financial life is made up of six different areas. Investment planning is one of them, okay? It's not all of them, right? So investment planning should get a lot of attention, but it should also be connected to tax planning and your cash flow, present financial position. What the reason you're investing, which is typically long-term goals like retirement and college planning, um, protection planning. This is your your investments are mixed with five other areas in your financial life that all need attention, and you need to make decisions that bring alignment with all of those. Now that said, we talk about investments from time to time, but at least twice a year. Once right around the beginning of the year, once right around the middle of the year, we do a show devoted to what's going on in the investment sphere and the investment universe. Josh, any final thoughts or action items with the investments uh, before we jump into questions? You know, maybe just a reiteration of something that you already alluded to, and that is no matter who you are and what you're investing for right now, um, whatever goal is attached to the, the investments that you're managing and making decisions on, I, I think it's important to pause periodically and make sure that you are taking the right level of risk. You know, when the market has been running as strong as it is, there's almost always going to be some sort of a pullback along the way. In fact, what, what's the statistic? It, it'd be interesting to look this up. What percentage of years, calendar years, have at least a 10% drop of some sort at one point or another during that year. One of my favorite charts, and if Kevin was here, he would say his favorite chart, although sometimes it's mind-boggling to him, the average inter-year drop. So from a high point in the year to a low point in the year, the average drop is 
14%. Isn't that amazing? This year, it's only been two, I think, uh-huh. three, something yeah. like that. So you would say, based on averages, I mean, I'm wondering the folks that are listening to this saying, wait, 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 wait. you haven't made your prediction yet. You haven't made your projection. Guys, you're at the wrong channel. That's, <laughs> That's not right. that like the folks that do that. No one stinking knows. And here's I, I haven't said this in a while. Um, if you're like, yeah, but that's entertaining to me, I, I and I think they're right. In at in 2020, did anyone predict a pandemic? Right. Did, did did anyone forecast? You know what? It's January 2020. I think we're going to have a global pandemic and everything's going to crash and then everything's going to boom. No one predicted that. So it's just it's just foolishness. Um, so we're talking about principles, you know, big picture principles. That's what. That's what we do here. That's what your financial decisions and investments should be based on. And that's, you know, I don't know if this is a principle or if it's just a reality of history and therefore probably a, a worthwhile reality of the future to hold on to. It is common for the investment world to have these types of pullbacks. You just said 14% average pullback when, when one occurs in a, in a calendar year. It's most years that there's some sort of a we call those corrections. If the stock market's down 10% or more, it happens so regularly. And to me, it's, it's making sure that you are emotionally and financially ready for some sort of a correction. It doesn't mean the world is ending. It doesn't mean that the bubble has burst. It doesn't mean that your financial future is unraveling before your eyes. It's just what the stock market does. Mm-hmm. And so to, to me, when you've had this strong of a run-up, a lot of people's portfolios, they start to become naturally more aggressive than what they really intend. And that's just simply because the stock market portion of your portfolio has ballooned to a bigger size. So you may need to go back and take some corrective action, kind of rebalance things back to an appropriate mix of investments for your financial plan. All roads point back to the financial plan when you're making your investment decisions. In the last 41 years, 31 of those years have been positive years in the market. And yet on average, there's been a drop of 14% within the year. Um, In the 80s, there was just one negative year. That's it. In the 90s, there were two negative years. Um, In the 2000s, of course, there there were several. There was four. But... In from 2010 to 2020, there's one, yeah, there's one negative year, and, and that's because a lot of times these corrections they solve themselves or they rebound faster than what you ever imagine they will. I mean, look at last year, that was not a negative year in the stock market. The year 2020 was not negative, but it was very negative for a little while. It had a 34 percent right? drop in it, and yet it was positive 16 percent for the year. Right. So, yeah. So prepare yourself for volatility because it is always there. It is ever present in the market. And that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong just because you see your account balances fluctuate from time to time. All right, let's transition here. We got Bill. uh, He reached out with a question. I was planning on drawing my Social Security as soon as I retire at age 68. My benefit will be $3,450. My wife is 65 and her benefit is six or excuse me, 950. Do you think I should draw immediately, and how much will my wife receive? You know, so so this is exactly the right type of question to be asking as you're marching into retirement. One of the biggest financial decisions that you make is when do you draw Social Security? And of course, you know, we would we would look at this question and we'd have to say, 
it's not knowable what the right answer is based on the information that, that we have here. It's not knowable, for example, if you were to delay Social Security, um, what are you going to live off of in the meantime? If you've walked away from a paycheck, you're not yet collecting Social Security. You have to have other resources to bridge that gap while you're allowing your Social Security to keep on appreciating. But that fact alone, a lot of people don't give enough credit to, um, or they don't emphasize the benefits of waiting to draw your social security. It is an 8% increase. Yeah. If every year that you delay your social security, you're getting an 8% reward for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. potentially for the rest of your surviving spouse's life. If, if you're the larger drawer out of, out of social security there. So to, to me, I would, I would frame this story problem as, uh, first of all, it's a financial planning question, mm-hmm. not just a retirement income question. There's tax implications here. This has implications on your investment portfolio. Um, you know, do you have assets positioned in a way where you can draw off of them easily without too much risk of fluctuation while you're waiting for the Social Security to, to continue to appreciate? But if you can pull it off, and not a lot of people can. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, the day they walk away from a paycheck, they need Social Security coming immediately, right? right? Because they hadn't done the kind of planning. The fact, Bill, that you're even asking kind of implies, though, that you have an option at, yeah. at your disposal here. And to me, the, the way to answer this question is by running a retirement forecast to say, which one's going to give you the best shot at the right outcomes for your whole retirement? Now, it, what's interesting, he did include here... M- his wife's age and her amount. In fact, when I connected with Bill following this question, uh, it was uh, there was more uh, confusion around. Well, how how does my wife's benefit connect with mine? What how does that really work? And while while Josh is right, I mean, there's a financial planning question, of course. But while Josh is right that there's great benefits, eight percent growth on your social security if you delay in this scenario you know if you're 68 your spouse is 65 and your benefit is 3450 but hers would only be 950 she's going to get half of yours and and then minus some minus a haircut if she takes it early yeah and but she can't do that unless you start drawing yours you used to be able to they close that loophole and so if he delays, that means she needs to delay or her benefit will be lower um, depending on when she draws. And so it's not just one benefit you're looking at. That's right. It, you've got to look at both. And so the right answer is embedded there within that comprehensive financial plan. But just be aware if you've got, I mean, basically, you're going to be able to draw your own Social Security or half of your spouse's, whichever is higher. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... If you and your spouse have very similar Social Security, then that's going to weigh in on when you should take it. That's going to be a factor. If not, if they're very different, like Bill's, um, then you've got to consider both of you in in that timing. So work with your CFP on it. That's a good point, because there are some times when it, it is not to your economic benefit to delay Social Security. 
right? It, it could have to do with your own life expectancy. If there's a major gap between the two spouses' ages, that can uh, have a bearing on it. Again, your own readiness and your your ability to even pull it off. Do you have the resources to do it? That's unique to your situation and different from your neighbors. And so the, to, to me, one of the biggest morals of the story when it comes to making a social security decision don't just look at what your neighbors did. <laughs> yeah. Don't just listen to your brother-in-law at a backyard barbecue and take his advice as if his situation applies to yours. Because first of all, you don't know what kind of analysis he did. He, he may just have a bias towards take it as early as you can. You got to get your money and run. That philosophy is just pervasive out there. That doesn't mean it's the one that's going to maximize or optimize your own retirement outlook. So work with your certified financial planner to answer this question. I don't know if we even have enough time to answer Kathleen's question here. She reached out and said, my husband and I were investing in our 401ks at work. We've got a broker that invests our IRA, and we have a CPA that does our taxes. Of course, we've got our insurance with the company as well. Why would we need a CFP? You don't, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, yeah. What? Why would you need a, a CFP? I mean, have have you had this question when someone has their team in place? Um, t- to me, one example. I, I've literally, I, I have a client just met with him yesterday who is a CFP, mm-hmm. and a brilliant guy. I mean, he he knows the strategies, he knows the rules, he knows all the techniques, all the process inside and out. And for him, and he, he said this on the way out the door, he said, Joshua, the whole reason that we're here is because someday if I pass away, my wife hates finances. She doesn't know any of this. And I want to make sure that she has someone that she can trust long into, into the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to, to me, it's about continuity over time, and then also continuity amongst the perspectives of all these professionals. How do you bring it all together so that they're truly collaborative professionals all working on the same plan together instead of each of them having their own perspective, their own opinion, and maybe taking you in very different directions? You guys probably want to invest as much as you can in your 401k. Your broker wants you to invest more into your IRA or invested a certain way. Your CPA doesn't care how much you contribute into your retirement and your insurance professional wants you to buy as much insurance as possible. That's why they each, each of these areas have their own agenda and you need someone tying all the agendas together into one plan. That's the role of your certified financial planner. Great question, Kathleen. We'll get into more of it in the future as well. But that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of Josh Gregory and all of us at Corhorn Financial Group, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.